Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I want to begin today by talking about or acknowledging my title for this sermon, uh, A Love Supreme, which I just I took directly from a title that you may recognize of a John Coltrane album. And this album Coltrane described as a profession or a confession of his faith, an exaltation, a hymn of praise to God. And the reason I wanted to bring this album up and bring it into my sermon is because I was listening to it as I was studying this scripture and, and writing the sermon, and I found out something interesting. And that's that along with the original LP, the original vinyl physical copy of this album, in the liner notes that came with the, the sleeve was included a poem that John Coltrane himself wrote by the same name, A Love Supreme. And the poem expressed in words what he was saying also through his music. It expressed praise and gratitude to God. And there are four songs only on this album. The final one he calls Psalm. And if you listen to this song while following along and reading the poem that he's written, you notice that his saxophone, his tenor sax, is playing the syllables of the words of the poem. So he's playing along to kind of the syllabic rhythm of the words. So he's obviously as a jazz artist limited by the, the scope of his genre. Most jazz of his um, uh, type doesn't include lyrics. And yet I think there's also something to be said for the fact that what he needed to say needed to be expressed through music. That those words were expressed as truly and as profoundly, maybe more so through his saxophone than through his writing. His bandmate at the time called what he did on this last song a wordless recitation. Wordless recitation. And the reason I bring this up is because as I was preparing for the sermon and, and writing it struck me that what this sermon is about, which is ultimately God's love, is kind of an impossible thing to just speak about. It's impossible to put into words exactly because, as we know, love is far more felt and experienced through action than told through words. And so my hope is that as I recite the words that I have prepared for this morning— that God may be giving some kind of wordless recitation in and through and under what I say that maybe gives flesh or gives truth to what I've prepared. So as we start, I want to give a bit of context first. So our passage for today from Romans 8 um, is written by Paul. The book of Romans is written by Paul, who is seen as a master rhetorician, or a master of rhetoric. And this letter to the Romans is, is 
considered by many scholars to be the peak of his intellectual rhetorical um, skill. It's written on an unknown occasion, uh, possibly to churches in Rome to make way for a, a mission there, for, his, for a possible journey there. But basically, he's putting the best of what he can say about the gospel of Christ into this book. He's trying to put his best foot forward and say all that he can about the gospel of Christ in the most beautiful and the most profound ways that he can. So Paul, in the the chapters leading up to chapter 8, where we pick it up, is like a master builder, constructing this framework of theology and rhetoric, speaking about sin and grace, about God's faithfulness from Abraham all the way till now. Some of the most famous prose that we have about what it means to live as a disciple of Christ come from the book of Romans. And our section for today is, structurally speaking, in the context of the book, what most scholars say is is kind of the end of this theological framework that Paul is setting out. The rest of the book is concerned with other things more political and slightly more practical. And so this is, in a way, the crescendo of the peak of Paul's theology. And reading the verses that lead up directly to our passage for today, something strange struck me. Um, In verse 18, Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Which is true and beautifully put. And yet it struck me as strange at this point in the book to circle back to the reality of sin and suffering. As he's preparing to crescendo and preparing to drive the points he's made already home, he circles back to the reality of human suffering. And so from a rhetorical perspective, it cuts against the grain of what we expect. It's as if he's constructed this house and then he pokes a hole in it. But fortunately for us, Paul is more concerned with truth than with rhetoric. And any theology that doesn't take seriously the realities of human sin and suffering doesn't have a place in the life of a Christian. Paul is being realistic that the threat of suffering and of alienation is woven throughout the fabric of human life. And so Paul says something very true, that along with all creation, with every living being, we groan. We groan as we await to realize, as he says, the adoption into the family of God. To realize the reality of our our adoption that's not yet been fully manifested. We groan as we realize how far we are from true Christ-likeness. When we see just how demonstrably alienated or in pain 
or unjust or cruel we can be, how many times we or others have been victimized or victimizers, we groan. Bringing this thought into our context, it's not a stretch to say that the kingdom of God hasn't yet come. It's like by using this metaphor of groaning, Paul is literally saying we're a far cry from it. And that's where we pick up our lesson for today in verse 26. That's where we pick it up that there's something in the way of love or something in the way of peace in the kingdom of God which has been left glaringly unaccomplished. The intensity of our longing for another world is evidence enough of that. Evidence enough that, as Cornelius Plantinga writes, everything is not the way it's supposed to be. And we need help. We need help even to imagine the world that is to come. We need help even to know what to desire. But in our weakness, Paul says in our passage, the Spirit of God helps us. We don't know how to pray as we ought. We don't know how to say what we want because what we want is a place we've never seen. A place free from suffering. A place of communion with one another and of peace. In other words, a place that isn't here yet. And so the Spirit of God groans with us eagerly longing for this other place. The same spirit that hovered over the depths of the waters when God created the world, that same spirit echoes in the deepest parts of ourselves on behalf of a world that has yet to be created. In verse 29, Paul describes this hoped-for world in family terms, which is really helpful, I think. We long to have our adoption realized. We long to be truly brothers and sisters of Christ in ways we can only even aspire to be right now. Basically, to live in union and communion with God and with one another. And I don't want to beat the drum of sin too hard but I think we can look around and see that that feels pretty far away. So we're left with groaning and longing for another world. What more is there to say then? Paul, in verses 29 and 30, says something interesting. That basically this world that is to come is inevitable. It's inevitable because it's the will of God, because it's somehow mysteriously the plan of God. But precisely because our salvation, the salvation of the whole world, our being embraced by God, our justification, our hoped-for glorification, the salvation of ourselves and of the world are the working out of one profound truth. And that's that, as Paul says, in all things, God works 
for the good of those who love him. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And I just want to take this opportunity before we dive into a bit more of, of what this might mean to clear up maybe a misinterpretation of this verse. It's a really well-known passage from this book. And there are a lot of different perspectives on it. And one uh, interpretation that might be popular is to say something like this. That although there is suffering, God is secretly working behind the scenes to make sure that we all somehow come out on top. That there's qualitatively or quantitatively going to be more good than bad in our lives. That in the last analysis, the scales will tip for the good. And I don't think that's what Paul is saying at all. I think what he's saying is something like, what is good for us, our good is redefined and rediscovered in light of God's love. Now, I don't mean to say just that God takes away things we like and teaches us to like new things, although that might be true in many cases. Rather that to be beloved by God is the good of humanity. The love of God is our good. They're the same. And again, if you'll indulge me to try to uh, point out another misinterpretation or, or, or possible um, temptation, um, it's, it's to say that love, the love of God, is a trait of God. We might think of love as a property of God, like we say God is omniscient or omnipotent. It's an adjective to describe, to describe God. And it's not. Love isn't a property of God. Love is an action of God. Love is an action of God. So if love is an action of God, and with this being established, from verse 31 until the end of our passage, until the end of the chapter, and really the end of the section, Paul wrestles with the profound goodness of this active, dynamic love of God that's expressed in Jesus Christ. He says, what then are we to say? What can we say about our suffering in light of this love? It seems contradictory. In light of this love, what about all the sin and the loneliness of this world? About all the violence that we commit or that we suffer? What can we say about the cruelty of this world? To bring it into our context isn't hard. What do we say about the loneliness of a pandemic or about repression and brutality and racism? What are we to say about the fact that the cruelty of this world doesn't match up with the intentions of God as enacted through Jesus Christ? Paul never really answers. He never really, he doesn't try to solve the problem. But he says none of this can separate us from God's love, which is a comfort. 
And yet, it's not that in suffering we aren't separated from God's love because, again, of a property of God's love. What I mean to say is that it's not because God's love is so qualitatively, again, or or quantitatively overpowering, like a song played on a stereo that's turned up louder than the songs of sorrow and suffering in our world. God's love doesn't just drown out suffering. No, God's love is love in Jesus Christ. That's why we can't separate ourselves from it. It's not that love just emanates from God and we bask in it and we forget about the suffering. This love came at a great expense to God. It came at the expense for Christ of giving up equality with God. And as a human giving up social status and living the life of a peasant, of a wanderer, of giving up his safety, becoming humble, and ultimately giving his own life for us on the cross. So we're not separated from God's love, not because God's love drowns out suffering, but because God's love suffers. Love isn't power, but rather sheer vulnerability. We can't be separated from Christ's love in our suffering or our shame or our sin because that is where his love finds us especially. We, as disciples of Christ, we who tell and retell again and again the story of Jesus Christ living and dying and being resurrected, we make a mysterious claim, and that is that at the creative center of all things, at the creative center of the universe, is a sacrificial, suffering love. Allow me a story. I've worked for the last year or so as a hospital chaplain, and I'm starting to come to the end of my time um, here at this hospital where I work. And there are many stories that I think I'll carry with me, but one that comes to mind frequently happened on Ash Wednesday this year, and it happened just before COVID. And on Ash Wednesday at the hospital where I work, we offer the imposition of ashes to Christians or to anyone who who wants the imposition of ashes. And I went to go offer these ashes to a man who I knew had spoken about his faith in Christ and who I had just spoken to him the previous day. And the previous day, we had spoken about how he had been coming in and out of the hospital more and more often. This man couldn't be more than 45 And he was beginning to grapple with thoughts of his own death and realize that he might be facing death. And he was courageous enough to admit uh, or, or, or tell me that he was afraid 
and he was he was afraid of death. And the next day on Ash Wednesday, when I went to go see him, he had been transferred to a, a, another room, a, a single room by himself, and he was having an especially bad day, physically, um, medically, and he was in his bed agitated and a lot of pain, uh, moving his body around, unable to settle. Um, and I came in and I told him, I'm sorry to see you in this state. And I explained to him the ashes and the purpose of the ashes, and I asked him if he wanted them. And he couldn't uh, say anything, but he nodded his head yes. And I knelt down beside his bed and imposed the ashes on his forehead, as we do in our tradition. And as we say in our tradition, I, I said the words, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And as I said those words and, and gave him these ashes, reminded him and myself of the frailty of our lives, tears began to come down his cheeks. And his body relaxed for a little bit. And we shared some moments of calm and peace together. Now, what I want to be careful not to say is that he wasn't still suffering in those moments. I don't think Christ took away his pain. In fact, I know he was still in pain. But what I hope to say is that when, when someone or, or when we are brought maybe to our most vulnerable place is when we might have the most profound experience of being grasped or being held or being in the care of something or someone that's much bigger than us or who is much bigger than us. And again, I want to be careful to say we don't seek suffering. Karl Barth, the theologian, says, you know, we don't need to try to suffer in order to enlist or enroll in the ranks of Christ's siblings. We don't willingly submit to suffering or seek it out. Christ's suffering was sufficient for us. And yet when we suffer, we know that we do not do it alone. So this text for today from Romans offers to us this mystery. And the mystery is that in the moments of pain, and persecution or weakness and alienation that life gives, we aren't the farthest we can be from God's kingdom, but are in a way the closest we can be. The wordless groans of desire or hope for a better world are the clearest when we recognize our brothers or our sisters suffering as cruciform, as being like crucified with Christ. Because as God embraced Christ, God especially chooses to embrace those who suffer. And so God's kingdom, to use the 
idiom is so close and yet so far. And there are places where the veil between this world and the next seems so thin that it could tear at any second. And these might not always be the places that we expect. If you listen closely, the wordless recitations of God's love are all around us and within us as well. The only question is, do we dare listen to them? Would you pray with me? Lord our God, we exalt you and we thank you for the love you give to us, that you express to us through the love of Christ Jesus, through the actions of Christ Jesus of going to the cross. God, may this love inflect, inflect our living. May it grow within us each passing day. May you teach us to love you and to love one another better and to hope for this kingdom that is coming. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.